On this week's episode of Practical Guidance, we hear from entertainment attorney Victoria Cook. Cook represents many award-winning film and TV directors and writers, including Jim Jarmusch, Robert Eggers, Todd Solins, and others. She's a partner at the firm Frankfurt Kernet and is dedicated to helping emerging filmmakers get their stories told. Cook is an active collaborator with the Sundance Institute, and Variety Magazine called her one of the country's 50 game-changing entertainment lawyers. Today, Victoria will weigh in on the current state of the film and television industry in the wake of COVID. I'm your host, Kevin Hilton. I'm an attorney with LexisNexis. To learn more about LexisNexis's practical guidance research solutions, visit Lexis.com. Lexis's practical guidance gives you legal insights to support what you do. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I know you're a partner at the New York office of Frankfurt Kernet, practicing in entertainment law. Would you tell me a little bit about your practice? I mainly represent what I would today call storytellers, people who create, direct, produce, um, occasionally finance all different kinds of content. Used to be mainly, I probably would say that I majority worked in the feature business for scripted and um, scripted writer directors as well as documentary filmmakers but I would say in the last 10 years things became very both like feature and television and then the last couple of years it's been dominated by the television business Um, but also many other things like podcasts gaming occasionally all different kinds of new formats like enhanced books which is kind of like something Mm -hmm. between a podcast and a and a book and an audiobook, some live stage, but really the core of my business are writers, directors, and writer slash directors of episodic television and feature films. Have many of your clients recently been shifting between these formats? Oh yes. What I would say that when I first started, people were very, very balkanized. If you were a documentary filmmaker, that's all you were kind of allowed to do. If you wrote if you wrote or even acted on television, you were in the television business. And if you did scripted features, you're a scripted feature person. Occasionally the writers of features would write television, but as a whole, you didn't see big feature directors directing pilots. You didn't see actors and features acting TV. You know, they were considered very, almost like a hierarchy, but that completely changed partially thanks to the streamers, partially thanks in general to the ways in which the feature business changed dramatically. And, in the ways in which people discovered that television can sometimes be like writing the great American novel. You can stay with your characters for longer. You can make it super intense in terms of its production values and cinematic offerings. And so people just started moving around a lot. And then as I think technology became more um, democratized, so many different kinds of people just said, okay, fine, I'm a documentary director and you're gonna tell me I, that's all I can do. I'll make a movie on my own. And then people were like, wow, you can do that, I guess. And then vice versa, as the documentary business became a bigger business, the people who used to only produce scripted or the directors that used to only direct scripted all of a sudden wanted to be in that business, partially because they realized it was a new, incredibly interesting way to tell a story, but also it was becoming a real business. And so there's so much more fluidity um, and cross-pollination 
of different kinds of creative endeavors, which makes my job so much more interesting. I hear you collaborate with the Sundance Institute. Yeah, I do a lot of volunteer work with the Sundance Institute. They've been very, very generous to me over the years in letting me be part of the Sundance family. Been a mentor at both the Producers Lab and the Catalyst Conference, um, as well as the Screenwriters Lab from time to time, where I go to really talk about legal issues. You know, I'm not like the other mentors who are like producers and other directors and people who help them creatively. But I try to help people early in their career, early in their project, sometimes they're actually quite mature um, filmmakers, think about the legal issues that could come up, um, whether it's how the, the rights that might be complicated, whether it's a complicated relationship with their collaboration partners, kind of financing pitfalls. So I've been very, very lucky to feel intimately involved in the Sundance Institute family. And it's been a huge gift to me, both in terms of the meaning of getting to be part of such a storied institute that helps so many young young new voices break but also it's really changed my career I've met so many of my interesting clients through having gotten a chance to meet them so early in their career and grow with them so it's been a really remarkable experience for me and I really appreciate them to no end at what point in a project are you stepping in to help with many of these storytellers for me it really depends on the client right so many clients come and they're fully baked. Like it's, they've had so much great, sophisticated help from other people. And they're really at a place where it's very far along, whatever their first project is. And I'm helping them do something. Or their first project is they're getting hired by someone to do something. So it's a much more traditional deal. They're a young screenwriter, um, young in their career. And so it's a simple, relatively simple studio deal. And so I'm helping them with that. On the director side is often someone who's trying to put together their first feature. And I'm not a production lawyer and I'm not a finance lawyer, but I, I've done those things in my career in 21 years of doing this. And November 1, I'll be an entertainment lawyer for 21 years, which is very hard to believe. Yeah. I'm a, law- general, a lawyer for 22 years. But in the course of that, I've done many different things. Um, and so I do have some background, significant background in kind of the indie finance world. So, and that's helpful to kind of, help the director think through some of the issues that are coming up on those projects. But I'm not really there to sort through that first movie's basic building blocks other than the director's deal. And if they wrote the screenplay, like that deal for that, and then advising them on kind of what's happening, but the project gets a, gets a, gets a lawyer. When it comes to their deal, they might have to do a deal with the producer and that's like the initial collaborator. So that deal I would help do. Or sometimes they have a co-writer on the screenplay portion of it, or sometimes it's a partnership in whatever way. And that could be super early in the process. Occasionally it's things like analyzing whether they need the rights of someone, if they're telling a true life story or helping them get a book because they need the rights to it in order to make the movie. You mentioned the rise of documentary in the industry. Are you seeing greater interest from studios and streamers in acquiring this content? Yeah, so 100%. And it's it's such an interesting moment this past year because it's been a perfect storm of multiple different reasons why that's happened. Even before COVID, there's been so much interest. I think it actually backdates to people loving reality television and suddenly thinking, like, finding real-life stories um, to be interesting in different ways. Mm. And that kind of made people recognize, and there's always been a business in that, at least for decades, right? Yeah. Um, But people realizing that people 
don't need there to be costumes and production design for people to be addicted to something um, and want to keep watching it. <laughs> and so there's that's helped. And then, of course, the incredible proliferation of so many more buyers who need content. And it is relatively cheaper content. Um, and it's also, I think people have started watching it so much more and recognize that it's an art form. It's not just a recitation of facts. It's not something just a journalist does. It's filmmaking. And I think that has a huge, huge part of it. So that has been been really true. But then when we get to a thing like COVID, where one of the things that when you make a documentary, it's a very small crew usually. Sometimes it's actually just a director and a sound person or just the director. So it's much easier to navigate the risks of COVID. And even sometimes it can be like, depending on the aesthetic of a project, you can kind of send a package home to the person you're, you're filming with and you film through you know, an iPad or something. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I have a, I have a, you know, a major director who's on a, was on a big film crew, uh, a big film set in Ireland where they were lucky enough to finally be able to finish it. But they had truly kind of like a cast of so many extras and so many everything. And like the COVID risks that were so intense. But when right. it's a documentary following an intimate subject of some kind, now, of course, if there's major travel and things like that, that can be a problem. But right. it was just so much easier to keep the docs going and commission new docs. And, and everyone was home and people were watching everything from Tiger King, you know, to whatever. And it was like right. the vow and everyone was like voraciously yeah. eating it up. So it's kind of just exponential at this point. So you believe the studios will continue to go in that direction as people have somewhat developed the taste for documentary now then? I think it's only going to get to be more because it's also, depending on the storyline, like some things are quite longitudinal, right? You're following people in real life that can take a long time. But a lot of them are kind of relatively short term in terms of how long you have to make it. The costs are less you know not necessarily in a bidding war when you sell it when a, if you equity finance and you get to sell a doc those prices today are the same as scripted which wow. is an incredible difference we're selling docs for the same amounts as we're selling scripted movies and bidding wars that's and remarkable. that's really new that's really new over the last few years and that's a huge change from just a few years ago the thought that even a documentary that won at a major festival could sell for the same amount as a narrative film is Hard to believe. Very different today, but it's not for all yeah. docs, right? It has right. to be sure, a doc that sure. feels commercial and yeah. everybody thinks they want and it becomes, you know, a hothouse atmosphere like anything. A lot of docs, I still have to remember, remind investors and people that you know, most things, docs or otherwise, don't sell for very much, don't always sell for of what course. they cost. So, you know, and it is also a very saturated market. And what the market wants today might not be what the market wants tomorrow. I hate personifying the market, but it's hard not to. Um, The anthropomorphizing a market is like so gross in a lot of ways. Like there's real people with real problems and real lives. And to say like the market, I feel like I sound like someone on CNBC or something that makes me sick. (laughs) But there is, it's a shorthand to talk about, you know, there's a collective thought about what people want to see. Often that collective thought is wrong. It turns out by the time they release something, there's COVID. Or that person turns out, as we've discovered, is a scumbag, the star of that movie, and nobody wants to watch that person anymore. <laughs> Who knows what happens? But but it does it does have a life of its own in the market. And right now, is, it really wants docs. Do you see an increased demand for series-based storytelling versus a single feature-length format? 
it totally depends on the material for sure. It always comes down to the material. But I think people, what used, you know, it used to be that if you were in the unscripted business, you wanted what, what you know, returnable series, which is a highly formatable thing. And it's easy to do spinoffs and sell it far in and all that stuff. And that makes sense in a world, which is in a streamer world, right? In a streamer world where they're taking all the rights anyway, having all those things to sell doesn't mean much. And so what's better is that more expensive budgets and also the streamers need kind of like a, a new form of appointment television because they need new subscribers. So the idea of having like very high end, either, you know, things that like catch fire with the public, you know, the last dance the you know, tiger King, um, the yeah. vow on the limited series size. I think that they feel they get more eyeballs for a longer time. Sure. And that's important. If we could turn to narrative TV and film for a moment. How has the industry shifted as things have begun to open up again from COVID lockdowns? I don't know so much for buying because yeah. it's, been, it's been super active on the development side anyway. I feel like there was like nothing to do other than develop. So people like hmm. were paying people to write. I think what really slowed down were small movie production because that's a place in which it's really hard to budget the COVID risk. If you're being cash flowed by a studio, a studio is rich enough to make their own judgments about whether or not they're going to need extra money. If there's a shutdown, if someone gets sick, what have you, they can afford to just pay for the guild issues. Like, you know, on a series, you have to, you know, pay everyone for their day of quarantine, days of quarantine. But if you're making a small movie, which is with equity financiers, and they took a risk to imagine what the movie would be worth at X, to imagine that now there's another million dollars in COVID risks and costs, it might not be so worth it anymore for them. And the downside is is a total loss, potentially. So those smaller movies are getting harder to make. My biggest worry is without those smaller movies, we're gonna there's going to be fewer and fewer of them to be sold later in the next few years because of this. And we're moving away from that kind of theatrical, small theatrical release. I don't think the streamers are buying movies without names. And how are we going to make like a Chloe's out? Like, how are we going to make people break right. people? You know, I worry about that a lot. Like for young filmmakers who are very interesting new voices who were able to make small movies and like, even if they didn't make a lot of money, but they were well-received at a Sundance or what have you, then they got to make more things, right? And then eventually they make right. Nomadland and they get to be right. them. Without having those smaller movies available to even be into the market, and especially if the market stops buying those movies because those small theatrical life isn't going to be there anymore if we don't really have theater chains and all that kind of stuff. I don't know how we're going to really break new voices except in television. And the one good thing is I do feel like TV is taking risks on smaller voices or new, newer voices. and But those people usually did make some kind of small movie that they saw first. When you say TV, I'm guessing you mean streamers and networks? I'm not talking hmm. about broadcasts like Right. sitcoms See, like I don't right. know that's not my business like, but I'm saying even at the more traditional television studios are coming to me for my clients who had one interesting movie in the last Sundance and now I'm talking about Sundance two years ago um, yeah. and they really like it and they want to offer them an overall like when did hmm. that happen before yeah. like occasionally it would happen to a white dude but not like my clients right. and now I have like you know I've always focused my practice on on kind of voices that I was more interested in. If you're going to have to spend this much time with people, I wanted to be voices that I love their, what they make. So they're usually, you know, women and women of color and all different kinds of outsider voices. And now documentary filmmakers. And all of a sudden I feel like the business came to me. 
like I was just working away on the (laughs) on the outskirts of what I was interested in doing because I love these voices and now all of a sudden I get calls from like NBC Uni and Paramount all these places for my directors and I'm like wow that's awesome do you see the studios changing what they're looking for topically in this space I think there is an actual not just not just because they feel pressure to like check a box. I think there's actually a finally an understanding that like, if you only make a certain kind of content, you're missing out on so much of an audience. Finally is beginning to like work. And it's, it's also because there's like a convergence of many things from, you know, a true understanding of the realities of social justice issues don't get fixed unless you actually help culture fix them. And I think people are genuinely motivated in good faith to do that. But also just as an economic reason that they recognize that those are the projects that seem to be taking off and that's what people want to see. And so all of that is coming together to create a very, very different market for my, for the people I see doing, not just getting work, but getting big deals, like big deals. You know, do I think on the edges, they don't really want projects that are truly confrontational or truly challenging about social, social justice issues? Maybe. I'm not sure they're really there yet. And I also don't know if they're truly there creatively. Like, you know, the the oddball filmmakers maybe are not going to actually get to do a major TV series so quickly because, like, the creative vision is still so avant-garde. So maybe on the edges, we're really not quite there yet. But I do see a huge thrust on the part of all the more traditional players to want all different kinds of people telling being telling stories and telling all different kinds of stories and even the avant-garde like wanting someone who's a truly avant-garde filmmaker to think about ways to make a tv show look more interesting and be more cinematic is finally on the table and those filmmakers are like who knew that tv would be this collaborative and this like giving me all these resources that i thought making these little independent films where at least i controlled everything i'd get to do but it's really nice to have these budgets and people really like all these people rushing to just fulfill my vision. <laughs> like it's kind of amazing. And I think there really has been a more open-minded world, especially in TV. Has COVID shifted the topical content that the studios are buying? I don't really know if it's changing what people think people want to see other than it's making people like I've heard of a projects that are too dark. No one wants right now. Like it's about right. death. It's about disease. It's about older people with mortality issues. No way. No one's greenlighting that. So was COVID the final straw? I mean, do you believe that big theatrical releases are now doomed? If you had asked me this question in May or June, I would have thought Uh the theatrical business is over forever. Now that we have giant TVs, we can even read subtitles. Like every movie I can get my way and not have problems with it. But I actually think we might go through a boom of the experience of going to the movies again. If Mm -hmm. we're really in a place where it's safe to go to the movies... I, I feel like not just because I'm in this business, but everyone I know is going to be like, I don't want to see anything on my TV ever again. <laughs> yeah, you might be right. <laughs> I don't want to sit on the couch. I'll just like go every night to the movies. I'll go every day. Like, so I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the movie business was changing so dramatically before anyway that I don't, I also think like the people who are obsessed with gaming might be like, I'm sick of the gaming. Like, I don't think there's a way, <laughs> you know, the roaring twenties happened after world war one and the, and the Spanish flu. I can't imagine that we're not going to try to have collective experiences again. So I, I don't know. I don't know. And I also wonder how much those superhero movies, like, you know, they make their money in all these ways about box office, which leads to their output deals being a certain level and they're foreign and this and that. 
one of the things that was changing anyway was how much the rest the world wants U.S. hegemonic culture, right? And what we've learned pre-COVID, thanks to Netflix and now all the other streamers, but especially during COVID, how much we want their culture, whether it's call me by, you know, call, call my agent or Stissel yeah. or what have you. We're watching every, you know, Narcos. Like, I don't think we live in a world anymore where we can rely on export in the same way, no matter what we're making culturally. Okay, so let's pretend you're talking to a new film grad from NYU or USC. What do you tell them to do in this landscape? Whatever they can get done. I don't think there any of those people are in a position where they have like, you know, any ability to just decide I'm going to go this way or that way. Like they should be trying every possible thing to do whatever they need to do to get their first thing made. And you know, does it mean toil away to make your first indie if that's what you're passionate to do? Like my job is to help them get whatever they want made made. Um, sometimes it might be worth giving up worrying about whether it has a theatrical release or not, or who knows, but I don't think the, I think the best advice to someone who's just starting is whatever you are passionate about, let's try to get it made. However you can get it made. Cause once you have something to show, it doesn't necessarily mean how to do well. It just has to be good. And that's the thing that then opens all the other doors. You're not going to open doors with nothing. So do something. If it means making yourself on your phone, try it. You can't wait around for conditions to be perfect. Thanks for your time, Victoria. To find out more about Victoria Cook's practice or contact her, check out her profile on her firm's website at frankfurtkernet.com. And thank you for your time today, listeners. I'm Kevin Hilton. Stop back in for my next episode, an interview with cybersecurity expert Andreas Kaltsunas. Andreas is a former FBI Cyber Task Force Special Agent and is now a partner and the co-lead of Baker Hostetler's Digital Risk Advisory and Cybersecurity Team. We will discuss the recent news surrounding the SolarWinds cyber hacks and the surrounding privacy issues at play. And remember, no matter your practice area, if you need practical guidance on how to proceed in your work, check out Lexis's Practical Guidance Research Solution, available now through Lexis. For more information, visit Lexis.com. Thanks, and be well.